Revelation chapter number 17 tonight. Um, I have to be uh, perfectly honest with you. Um, This is, uh, out of all of the book of Revelation, we've been kind of trudging through the last three chapters and just trying to make heads or tails of what's going on. But the next two chapters that we're going to cover tonight... 17 and 18, are the most difficult two chapters in all the book of Revelation. And uh, I've given you notes, and uh, some of it you're going to look at it and go, that doesn't make any sense, and I'm going to agree with you. Okay? I'm just being perfectly honest. This was the chapters that I've been anticipating since we began, and here they are. And uh, these are, are very, very difficult to understand, but... Once we get past these two chapters, it opens up for us again um, to give us better understanding. So I I just want to um, uh, help you tonight uh, the best way that I know how. I I honestly, through these two chapters, I honestly don't have a lot of answers. It's it's hard to distinguish. There are probably, probably... and I'm not exaggerating, there are probably five to 10,000 different views about these two chapters um, from different Bible scholars and different people. And uh, so it's difficult. All I can do is uh, give you uh, the information to the best of what I believe um, and to the best of my knowledge based upon other passages of Scripture and the Word of God and uh, my understanding. And so uh, you may go home and you may study this on your own and you may come back to me and say, Pastor, I have this idea, I think it might be this way, and I'm going to tell you it very well might be uh, because I just don't have the definitive answer and you probably uh, won't hear a pastor say that too often. And uh, I just don't have uh, uh, the, the complete um, understanding of these two passages of scripture, or these two chapters, but we will do the best we can, all right? Are we, are we good? All right, here we go, right at the top. Uh, in our last lesson, we studied the seven bowls of wrath, which are the last of the trio of judgments recorded in the book of Revelation. And those judgments, we saw those with the mark of the beast infected with ugly and painful sores and all sea life killed, the freshwater polluted, dramatic changes in the atmosphere so that the sun literally scorched the people, Darkness uh, came upon the earth, uh, an enormous earthquake and great hail of stones, each weighing about 100 pounds. And that's what we talked about uh, last week. As a result of the judgments of these seven vials or bowls, the world would be totally devastated. Since the threefold series of divine judgments is now over, the time is ready for Christ to return and claim his inheritance. And that's where we get to where Revelation opens back up again to help us have a better understanding of the things to come. However, in chapter 17 and 18, there is another parenthesis or an interlude inserted. These two chapters describe the destruction of Babylon. Now, uh, this is where we start right away to get into murky waters um, because the definition of Babylon um, is, is defined in many different realms in different ways. And uh, so it starts right away. In John's original readers probably believed that Babylon represented the city of Rome. And that is probably what you've heard most of your life if you've studied Revelation chapter 17 and 18 with the fall of Babylon the Great. 
Many people believe that Rome is Babylon the Great. Um, I have uh, a different perspective, okay? But and I'm going to give you the reason for that. Um, uh, and, uh, but again, you can take this study and, 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 and you can put it into what you've learned um, or, or put both of these together or whatever you decide to do. Uh, so they, they believed it represented the city of Rome. And John's prediction of the fall of Babylon meant impending fall of the Roman Empire. And many scholars and Bible interpreters still hold that view that uh, there would be an impending fall of the Roman Empire. Yet, to identify Rome as Babylon is simply not sufficient to explain these two chapters because of the details of John's description of Babylon do not fit any city in past history. And so when people began to correlate the, the Roman Empire to the city of Babylon, the struggle here for me and, and with others is that there is literally no city that fits into John's description. So what do I take from that? Well, in the Old Testament, Babylon was so often denounced by the Old Testament prophets that the name became synonymous with corruption, pride, and evil. The name Babylon in Revelation chapter 17 and 18 should be understood, in my opinion, as an evil system, not in terms of geographical boundaries. Many scholars want to say it's the fall of the Roman Empire. I don't know that we can put geographical boundaries on the fall of Great Babylon. I think instead that it should be understood as an evil system. And that, now, for some of you, that may be a new, uh, new terminology or a new thought process. But if you'll just give me the next uh, few minutes to develop that, so that you'll kind of understand where I'm coming from biblically. The destruction of Babylon has already been mentioned in chapter 14 and verse number 8 and chapter 16 and verse number 19. But here in chapter number nine, or 17, it's described in detail. Chapter 17 emphasizes the destruction of the religious aspects of Babylon. And chapter 18 details the commercial aspects of Babylon. Number one, the fall of ecclesiastical Babylon. The fall of ecclesiastical Babylon. I'm going to do my very best to explain this in terms that we can all understand. Uh, If you have questions along the way, I'll be happy to answer them. But I don't want us to get bogged down in it, okay? Um, but I'll be happy to answer your questions. So number one, the fall of ecclesiastical Babylon, or in other words, the fall of the religious side of, of Babylon. Uh, let's read chapter 17, starting in verse number one. Chapter 17 and verse number one. Um, and there came one of the seven angels, which had seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show thee, or excuse me, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. 
And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Now, let me ask you a question. Uh, and this is where we have an advantage, okay? And I want to just talk about this for a moment. Why do you think, and maybe you've learned this, why do you think that scholars believe that Babylon is the Roman Empire as a solid geographical term? Any thoughts? Anybody ever heard that? Let's ask that question. Okay, we've had a couple okay, co- people. Um, they believe that because you got to understand, time always tells. Do you understand that, what that means? In, in other words, uh, um, we, whenever John wrote the book of Revelation, the Roman Empire was rising up. They were persecuting Christians. Do you remember? Uh, you look through the book of Acts, they were killing Christians. So the Roman Empire was rising up. And so in their mind, Rome was the place where destruction had to take place in order for Christianity to prevail. So they believed that Rome Rome was the the great Babylon. Now, let's fast forward 2,000 plus years to today. Yes, Rome is still powerful. Yes, Catholicism is still strong. But you've got to understand something. It is no longer the strongest religion. Are you with me? We're starting to put the puzzle pieces together, aren't we? See, what happened was, is that when these scholars believed that the Roman Empire was in fact the great whore that was going to fall in, 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 in Babylon, or Babylon being that, they looked at it at that time period as who was causing the most destruction. And now I believe as we fast forward and we have the huge advantage of seeing history. By the way, in case you've never heard of it, history is nothing more than his story being written out in front of us. And all through the years, if you do a historical background of this passage and looking at it from a scholar's standpoint, you'll see that generation to generation to generation. And then all of a sudden, uh, when 1946 came, when Israel became a nation again, everybody went, wait a minute, what's going on? And we continued to progress now into the year 2000, where we were not literally supposed to be here anymore by many scholars' estimations. The rapture was already supposed to take place on y and we were all out of here. Do you remember that? Okay. And so that didn't happen. People sold their lands. They went to the top of the mountains. They, they, they decided that God was coming back and they left all their possessions behind and everything because the Lord was coming back and we got to get to the top of the mountain to get closer to him because he couldn't get us from the earth. Crazy. Okay. My Bible tells me no man knows the day or the hour. That's what my Bible says. My Bible says he comes as a thief in the night. Right? All right, so we have the advantage of looking at 2016, and if we take a few minutes and we restore history for a moment and we put all the building blocks together, we will understand why they believed that it was the Roman Empire. But I believe now that it is just not a geographical location. I believe it is a full evil system that has to fall because now... And I want to be very cautious here because I don't want to offend and I, and I don't want to discount anything. But if you look at the rising religions of Islam and you look at the rising religions that are happening throughout our world, they are becoming greater than that of the Roman Empire. The, and, and let me just put it to you like this, as straight as I can. The Pope is not as powerful as we think he is. 
Are you with me? He used to be. He did. But there has been progression throughout history that is beginning to diminish him as being who many people believe that he is. And now what's happening is, unfortunately, Christianity didn't step in and fill the gap. Somebody else has. And now what is happening, we're having a rise of an evil system. Look at Brussels. Talk to them about an evil system. Look at Paris. Talk to them about an evil system. Ask New York about an evil system. That's why I believe that the the fall of ecclesiastical and commercial Babylon is no longer geographically centered I don't believe actually that it ever was. I think we were literally taking the knowledge that we had and implementing it just as I'm trying to do this evening. Does that make sense? Are we, you following me? I know that's a lot, but I just want to try to explain it to you. All right. Ecclesiastical Babylon is described in verse 1, the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. According to verse 15, the waters represent uh, uh, the waters which thou sawest where the whore sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Did you see that? He encompassed everything. He encompassed peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. It is not one geographical location. The religious system during the tribulation is called the great whore because she is guilty of spiritual adultery and spiritual fornication. Spiritual adultery and spiritual fornication. In other words, literally cheating on God. This indicates she has the support of the world leaders and her teachings are so enticing, they are described as intoxicating. Apparently the most deceptive religion the world will ever know will exist during the Great Tribulation. There will be a one world government and there will be a one world religion. And it will be so powerful and so intoxicating that everyone will buy into it. And it will be a very deceptive religion. It will be, and I dare say, that we are setting ourselves up for that. Why do you say that, Pastor? Because there are so many churches in America alone that are teaching a feel-good, a a prosperity gospel that is literally blinding people's eyes to the truth of the gospel. And people are dying and going to hell believing that as long as they do some good in this world, they will go to heaven. And they're not being taught good works. They're being taught prosperity. And they're being taught that that that, that is the, the prosperous way, is the way to heaven. And that God loves you and that God only loves you and that certainly you would not do anything to cause harm to you. It's intoxicating. Why is it intoxicating? Because it makes me feel good. Because my religion is now about me and it's no longer about God. Are you with me? My religion is about how good I can be. And when I come to church on Sunday, I get a pat on the back for everything I did good. And, and, and granted, church should not be a place that we get, uh, uh, we get uh, drugged down and we get beat upon. But it should be a place of, of doctrinally sound teaching and preaching that convicts us to make a change according to the word of God that is still as powerful as it was then as it is now. Are you with me? So it's going to be a deceptive religion. You're going to get me to preaching and we're going to be in trouble. Um, in verse 3, John says, And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The beast 
is the Antichrist. And, and the fact that she sits upon him suggests a religious political coalition. A religious political coalition. The Antichrist uh, uh, and, and, and Babylon are becoming one. They're, they're a coalition. At the end of chapter 16, John observed the devastation of the world, which culminated with a global earthquake and awesome hailstorm. He said, Pastor, why are we taking a step back? Because you need to understand where we are at here. This is, as I mentioned at the very first slide, this is a parenthesis, okay? The events that are taking place, which I'm about to explain to you, are not happening in succession anymore. We, what, what you're seeing in the fall of Babylon is not happening after the seven bowls of wrath. These, uh, these things that are happening are actually happening prior to chapter number 16 and 17, okay? Um, and so we're going to see that, but I, I just want you to understand that's the reason we're taking the step back because we are not now, we're no longer in chronological order. You say, Pastor, how you, what, what gives us the indication? There's some biblical indication, but more than anything, we know that when the last judgment is given at the vials that are given out, utter destruction has taken place already. So how could a fall happen after destruction? It doesn't. These are, these are not successive in order. Um, this is literally us taking a narrative and putting a parenthesis right in the middle of it, okay? I know it's confusing, um, and, uh, but it, I, we need to talk about that. Uh, now, John is translated back in time prior to the judgments described in chapter number 16. Perhaps to an early part of the tribulation before the man of sin overthrows religion and requires everyone to worship him. Do you remember that? The, the mark of the beast, everybody has to worship him. Whoever doesn't take the mark is going to be killed. You remember us talking about that? So, so uh, really, these, all of these events have to be prior to that um, in order for those events to take place, okay? The harlot is described in verse 4 as arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. This is implying her wealth. And her influence, her wealth and her influence in verse number four. The golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication, refers to her gross infidelity to God and his word. It may also indicate, and this is where it gets a little bit scary, uh, she will use the Bible but will distort it to deceive people. Now, you, you will never convince me that we are not living in the end times. And I'm going to tell you why. Because this process is already beginning. People are rewriting the word of God. And they are distorting it and deceiving people. Now... I, I, I want to be cautious here because I don't want anybody to walk away mad at me, okay? But I, I am not a, a person that, that believes, and I'm going to be very careful here, that believes that one Bible is the only way, okay? But I do believe that any version of the Bible that takes away the deity of Christ, are you with me? Is doing nothing but distorting and deceiving people. Now, I preach and teach 
from the Bible that I choose, which is the King James. But that is not the only Bible that I study with and, and that I look at. I want you to understand that, okay? And I don't want that to be a shock to anybody, all right? Because I believe that you can learn things in different manners in different ways. Now, I could go through to you a whole study that would take us another 26 weeks to discuss to you about how we get the origins of the Word of God and how all of that attests and lines up and how that there are manuscripts out there that have done nothing but distort and deceive people. And that begins when people begin to take the deity of Jesus Christ out of it. Listen to me, church. If you have a Bible at home that begins to eliminate the blood, we've got a problem. Okay? You got me to preaching. If you have a Bible that takes away the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, we've got a problem. If you've got a Bible that doesn't say that I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and there's no other way to get to heaven, we've got a problem. Okay? Because what we're doing is we're distorting and deceiving. What really frustrates me is how we've now started to accept Bibles that on the, ori- the origin of them were a paraphrase of the Bible. And, and I'm really struggling with that because now we're accepting that as the gospel. Listen, you cannot paraphrase God. When God delivered the word of God to these men through the inspiration of, the, of, 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 of who he is, and we believe that, that all 66 books are inspired of the word of God, when you begin to say, well, we can paraphrase that, what they're doing is saying, hey, listen, we've got a better avenue. We have a better way. And I want to tell you that I struggle with that. I struggle with it. And so my encouragement to you is this. My encouragement is is that when we look at the Word of God and we begin to see what it says in truth, that we make the decision that the only thing that we care about and the only portion that is the most important to us is that we uphold the deity and the sacredness of Jesus Christ. Because that is what matters. And I'm afraid. That we are setting ourselves up for this very thing. That literally the Antichrist will not have a problem distorting and deceiving people. Because it's already already beginning to be written. Does that make sense? Any thoughts about that? I know I seem passionate about it, but I'm open to it. Any, any, Any thoughts? Do you agree? I mean, do you agree? I mean... Uh, when, 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 you know, let, let me just put it to you like this. I don't want anybody to talk bad about me, right? You don't want anybody to talk bad about you. I don't want anybody to try to change my name. I don't want anybody to try to change my heritage. Do I have flaws in my heritage? Absolutely. But I don't want to change that. I am who I am by the grace of God. Don't try to paraphrase my life. Don't try to remove portions so that it sounds a little better. And the reason is, is because I am who I am by the grace of God. So don't go try to change who Jesus is. Don't go to try to change his heritage and what God has done in his life. Because who he is is who he is. And we have to stand for that. We have to. All right. I'll go past it. He will use the Bible to distort and deceive people. 
Upon her forehead was the name written, Mystery Babylon the Great. The harlot is called a mystery, indicating use of the name Babylon the Great is a secret use of the word, referring to the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Chapter 17, verse number 5. The prostitute is the mother of all spiritual prostitutes and is the source or the womb that gives birth to all historical spiritual deception and resistance to God. And of course we know that based upon the enemy. She is the unholy opposition of the bride of the lamb described in chapter number 19 verses 7 through 8. All the cults, false teachers, false prophets of history are children for she is the mother of all abominations of the earth. This could also mean many groups will join together under the harlot to form one federated world religion. And uh, we see that because of the the hierarchy and and literally the culmination that takes place in the book of Revelation, also in the book of Daniel, also in the book of Ezekiel. Verse 6 describes her crimes as he is drunken with the blood of the saints... And with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, it is an amazing thought. The same mother harlot who has been the prime mover behind the killing of all saints throughout history will participate with the beast in the slaughter of the Christians during the Great Tribulation. And we've talked about that slaughter that takes place. And we've talked about those that were uh, uh, martyred during the Tribulation going up into heaven and begging God for vengeance. Revelation chapter 17 and verse number 7, the Bible says, And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and the ten horns. Let's read, uh, continue on. Verse number 8. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall ponder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they beheld the beast that was and is not and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space." And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seventh, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them, for he is lord of lords and king of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. He saith unto me, the waters which thou sawest... Where the horse sitteth, there are people in multitudes of nations and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. A lot of things being said there. Let's break them down quickly. The angel identified the beast as the one that shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition or doom. This phrase is future tense, indicating the events of verses 1 through 7 precede the beast's rise to power. 
The beast descends out of the abyss of the bottomless pit in 11.7, making this section in chapter 17 precede that event chronologically, all right? Do you remember chapter number 11, verse number 7, the pit opened up, he came out of the pit, do you remember that? Okay, so all of this that we've just learned in verses 1 through 7 all happened before chapter number 11, okay? Uh, so, so again, this is a parenthesis, we're just kind of putting them into place uh, throughout the book of Revelation. The reference to the beast that was and is not and yet is probably means the evil one has a three-stage history. The phrase that was could refer to Satan's ability to keep the world in darkness prior to the coming of Christ. And the yet is shows there is a revival of Satan power still to come. And we've talked about that already. The seven heads in 17.3 upon which the harlot sits are called seven mountains in chapter 17 and verse number 9. And are interpreted as seven kings in chapter 17 and verse number 10. Now, the equating of mountains with kings is not uncommon in the Bible, all right? Uh, This is not something new. Isaiah tells us, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it, okay? Uh, It is impossible to identify the first seven kings in Revelation chapter 17 and verse number 10. We read it just a moment ago. Let's look at it again. It says, And there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. That's all we know. Okay? So I, I, I tried to dig down into that verse, and I couldn't find anything. Uh, it, it is literally, uh, we don't know who these kings are, the, these first seven kings. However... According to chapter 17, verses 12 through 14, the eighth king will rule over a ten-kingdom federation that will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. Who is the Lamb? Jesus. What's happening here? We're setting ourselves up for the battle of Armageddon. That's right. So the eighth king will rule over the ten-kingdom federation... And they will make war with the Lamb. We talked about that all the nations will come together against Christ. An account of the doom of ecclesiastical Babylon is given in 1716. We'll read that here. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. The words naked, eat, and burn refer to the utter destruction of the harlot. The harlot will be destroyed. Revelation 17, 17 is another example of God's use of evil forces as instruments of executing his divine will. God will always get his will accomplished no matter the cost. Finally, the angel said to John, and the woman which thou sawest is that great city. Apparently, the world religion of the harlot will be centered in some great city with such power that it reigneth over the kings of the earth. We don't know exactly where that will take place. Um, This kingdom will be set up, nor do I want to speculate, um, as there is much speculation about it. But we just know that it will be in a a prominent location um, with great power. Thus, chapter 17 tells us that false religion, Babylon the Great, will flourish during the early part of the Great Tribulation and will exercise great political power. But the beast will see her as a challenge to himself 
and where the Federation of Ten Nations will completely annihilate her. Now, let's, let's take a step back for just a moment. We don't have a lot of time here, but I, I want to kind of round this thought to you. When we've gone through the book of Revelation, there's been a residing pattern. The pattern is this, is that people that do not accept Christ, no matter what happens to them, no matter the plagues that come, no matter the torment that comes, no matter the trials that come, what is, what, what is the one thing that they never do? They never ask for mercy, they never turn to Christ. We see it time and time again throughout the book of Revelation where it says, and they did not turn from their deeds, and they did not give over to Christ. Do you want to know why? They did not turn over to Christ because of the religious power that was overtaking them during the Great Tribulation, which is the ecclesiastical side of the fall of Great Babylon. They were so enamored with the things that were happening religiously around them and being deceived in such a great way that they were taught somewhere along the way that this, that, that, that this Christ and that this God is not who he says he is. He is trying to annihilate you. He is not trying to save you. Does that make sense? And so they are being, and excuse the term, brainwashed. Yes. No, no, no. See, and that's where we can't get confused. These, this passage of Scripture in chapter 17 and chapter number 18 are not happening after grace has been taken out. It's happening while the 144,000 are still on the earth. We have to go back and we have to place this in, the, in chapter number 11 and chapter number 10 where the 144,000 have been released. They are evangelizing the earth and the, and the great harlot is deceiving people saying, listen, you don't listen to them because it's not true. This is the right religion. This is the way to go. Does that make sense? These are all happening at the same time. It's a good question. Any other questions that you have? I know it's hard because it's happening so late. You know, you, you kind of watch this progression happen and then all of a sudden it's like, whoa. And now we've got to rewind and actually put it into place. And that's where the book of Revelation, you hear so many people talk about, I, I, get, I struggle studying it. Well, and, and I understand the struggle studying it, but if you could put it, if you could literally take the book of Revelation and take all the chapters and lay them out on a table, if you could get them into chronological order, it would make a whole lot more sense. But there was a lot of parenthesis going on. It's the only word I know to use. <laughs> there might be a better word. Um, and so, so let's place this where it goes back in, in chapter number 11, okay? Any other questions about that? Good. Yo, go. It's a good, good statement. That's a good question. Um, I know for Brother um, Woody Baker that was here, Wycliffe, that, and, 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 and I want to be very cautious here because, again, I, I don't want to sway anybody anyway, but there are some good Bible translating companies, and there are some translating companies that are not up to par. They, and, and, and what that takes is this. It's very important that we never, and, and, and I... We never translate the Bible from the English. Okay? 
You hold in your hands, many of you hold in your hands, either a King James Version, a New King James Version, an English Standard Version. Um, Some of you might hold an American Standard Version. Whatever the case might be, okay? You hold that in your hands. That is the English Version that was translated from the Greek and the Hebrew manuscripts. When a translator comes to translate the Bible into a language like Brother Baker's doing, you, have, you cannot take an English Bible and translate it into their language. The reason is, is because just like with anything, when a Bible or when any document is translated into another language, it loses some things, okay? When, and, and, and so what we have to do is with Bible translation is they have to go back to the original. Of course, we don't have the, the original, original manuscripts. That, that's a whole other uh, um, study. But they have to go back to the most recent documented manuscripts that we believe are the closest to the original manuscripts. And they have to translate from the Greek and the Hebrew into this language. So the process that they talk about, it takes so long when it comes to Bible translation. Now, a lot of what, some of the things that he's doing when we're talking about discipleship and all that kind of stuff, they can translate that from the English. That's no problem. But when we're originally translating the Bible, we have to go back to the original Greek and Hebrew and, and then take that and translate into this. So it's a huge, long process because you have to start with someone who's fluent in Greek and Hebrew and also fluent in their language. That's right. Well, it's all faith. I mean, everything is faith. But, you, but, but in order to capture the most authentic word of God, you have to go back to the original manuscripts. You have to. And so that's why it takes so long to translate a Bible into a language properly. Is because you have to have the right steps. Does that make sense? Um, did that answer your question? But, but okay, well, let me, let me go a step further. Let me go a step further. With Wycliffe, and, and there's a couple other ones that are really good. When the Bible is translated from the Greek into their form, yes. You got to, oh man, it's 751. Um, when our, no, 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 it's good. When our Bible was translated, uh, or when, let me take that, let me go even a step further back. When, when somebody once said, said to me just a few weeks ago, they said, Pastor, um, you know, there are other books in the Bible that are not in the Bible. You all know that, right? It's called the Apocrypha. How many of you ever heard that term? Okay, so they say, why are those not included in what we hold as a Bible? You've got to understand that whenever the Bible was translated and given um, and was inspired by God, then, then it was written into form. It was either written into Greek or it was written into Hebrew. Um, and, and they took that and they took it to the four corners of the earth. And there were literally councils on the four corners of the earth that had to approve every book of the Bible. And they did that by matching it up with who they knew God was. And then once this group approved it, they sent it down to this group. And then they approved it. Then they sent it down to this group. And they approved it. And they sent it down to this group. And they approved it. And they said, this is truly, in fact, the word of God inspired by God. And they took that and they incorporated it into the 66 books that you hold. The Apocrypha are books that were written by men written by men, but were not inspired by God. I know we're getting real deep, but just hold on, okay? This is the foundation of it, all right? So they were written by men, not inspired by God. And the reason that we know that is because of the four councils. 
that were godly men. And boy, oh boy, what a study that is. You should take some time to do it. Uh, it would take you a few years. Um, and and, and you, you learn about these men that took the word of God and literally just bathed themselves over. You understand that when the writers of the word of God would write God's name, that it was so precious to them that they would take their pen and they would throw it away and they would get a brand new pen and they would write the name of Jesus or the name of God or any name of God. And if it, was, if it butted up to another name of God, they would take that pen and throw it away and get a new pen and write his name again. That's how much they had so much holiness and so much reverence for who God was. And so when these manuscripts would go to the four corners of the earth, they bathed over them to prove that they were in fact the 66 books of the Bible. And the Apocrypha were the ones that were thrown out that said, no, these are just man's opinions or man's stories. Okay? So we have the word of God. When someone like the Wycliffe translators, when they begin to translate the Bible, it is a group of people. And they go through the process and they approve everything that is being written as a council, just as it was done back in the Bible times. I'm sorry if I'm boring you. Does that make sense? So when we talk about the word of God and how precious it is, and that's why, that's why when many of these guys come, this is what they'll say. We only have the book of John and the book of Romans. We have translated for 10 years, and all we have to give to the people is the book of John and the book of Romans. That could take you to many countries, that it's just the book of John and the, just the book of Romans. Why? Because they take the book of John and they lead them to Christ. Then they take the book of Romans and they show them how to lead others to Christ. That's their discipleship. It's get them saved, then get their family saved. And then everything else... It's just discipleship material that they write and translate into the language to teach them about the concept of who God is and about the doctrines of God. And so then now they only have to translate a few verses at a time instead of a whole book of the Bible at a time. Can you imagine translating the first Chronicles into Papua New Guinea language? I mean, I mean, really, well, let's just be real with each other. So what do they do? They take the, the, the things that they need the most. Now, I'm not discounting the book of Chronicles, okay? But they're taking what these people need the most, which is what? The gospel, that's right, the salvation. Any other questions? Did, did, did that develop even better? Okay, good. He's smiling now. He was looking at me a little strange a few minutes ago, and now he's smiling. We got it. Any other questions about that? Well, the follow commercial Babylon is going to have to happen next week. Because we are out of time. Um, it, it is a, as you look at all of this, it's very, I know it's very fascinating, it's very deep. But I love the fact that you're, you're really engaging with it. It, it thrills me. Um, and, and I would encourage you to go home and, and look at this even more. You can even jump ahead if you want to. Um, in, in chapter number 18, the fall of commercial Babylon, it's not as long of a, of a, a time span teaching-wise as ecclesiastical is. But the things that we need to know from it is that this, that this is the bottom line. And this is my challenge to all of you. Do not ever, do not ever allow anyone to take the deity of Christ away. Please don't. You see, I want you to understand something. 
and I've shared this with you before, but I think it's important that you understand it. De- the deity of Christ has been tried, has, they have tried to remove the deity of Christ from the very beginning of time. You know the story, Cain killed Abel. Why did Cain kill Abel? Why did it happen? Jealousy, okay. Why else? What, what happened? Here's Cain working in the field, growing his crops. Here's Abel tending to the sheep. God comes. He says, it's time to offer a sacrifice. What do you have to offer? You have to offer a perfect, spotless lamb. Because from the very beginning of time, it, salvation has always come through the blood. Always. It was, it was sacrifice day. What happened? Cain showed up. He had the what? What did Cain have? His crops. What did Abel have? A lamb. What did God say? Abel has offered up a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Why? Not because what Cain did was not acceptable in God's sight as far as his work is concerned. No. But because from the very beginning of time, everything that had to take place in the, in, in, in the deity of Christ began and ended with the blood. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. None. And that started from the lamb. And the Bible says that Cain uh, wrought in his heart. And Cain killed Abel. And what does the Bible say in the book of Hebrews about Abel? It says his blood still yearns from the ground. Why? Why does that happen? Because from the very beginning, the blood is the only way. And I'm telling you, when people begin to diminish the blood of Jesus Christ, what are they doing? They're taking their works and they're allowing them to trump what Jesus did. And it can never happen. It can't. I can't work my way there. No matter how great I am, no matter how great you are, it will never happen. Because as the hymn writer says, how great. That's right. Any questions? I know I gave you a lot of information out of the book of Revelation tonight. (laughs) And uh, as my wife would say, I chased a lot of rabbits, all right? Um, But I hope it was helpful to you. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for the wonderful evening we've had. Thank you for the interaction and the engagement. Lord, I pray that we will uh, just want to learn more and more about who you are. And uh, God, that uh, we will continue to serve you and continue to love you all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your nights.